You know, one of the keys to learning is repetition. It's sad but true. We seldom learn anything the first time it's taught. Because we're hard of hearing, sometimes slow to apply, often the lesson has to be repeated. I heard of a man who'd been on the job for 25 years. And every year he was passed over for a promotion. Finally, he complained to his supervisor, Why am I not qualified for a better job? I've got 25 years experience. His boss corrected him, No, Joe, you've got one year experience 25 times. (laughs) Joe had lots of opportunity, but he had learned and applied very little. And this was the case with God's people Israel. Chronicles is the second time their history has been repeated to them. Samuel wrote a history of Saul and David. The prophet Jeremiah wrote a history of the kings of the divided kingdom. And both histories were chocked full of lessons. Lessons that God's people had failed to learn and to listen to. Israel had one year of experience 900 times. Don't misunderstand, God holds us responsible to learn the lesson the moment it's taught. But He knows our frame and our frailties, and God is so patient. First and Second Chronicles proves that God is willing to repeat His lessons when needed. Well, chapter 11 begins the chronicles of the reign of King David. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. After the death of Saul, only the tribe of Judah recognized David as God's appointed successor. And David ruled the southern kingdom of Judah for seven and a half years but he did so at the city of Hebron. The northern tribes, you remember, they made Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, their king. But when Ishbosheth was assassinated, they turned back to David, and they come down to Hebron to make peace. And they point to three reasons why they want to embrace David's leadership. First, David is an Israelite. He's their blood relative. Second, David had proved himself a capable leader. He had formerly been a general in Saul's army. And the third reason they want to embrace David is he had a direct call from God to be a shepherd and a leader over Israel. And I want you to know, these are the same three traits that you need to be looking for in a spiritual leader. First, is that leader one of God's people? Is he one with the people he's wanting to lead? Is there a heart connection with the people? Second, has he been tested and proven in battle? And then third, is he called by God? A spiritual leader should be all the above, connected and confirmed and called, connected to the people, confirmed by his actions, called by his God. Well, therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Then they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Actually, this is the third time that David gets anointed king. Remember, the first time was at Jesse's house when he was a young boy. The second time was when he was made king over Judah. And now the third time here at Hebron, he's made king by all of Israel. 
And David's first move as king is to consolidate his kingdom by relocating his capital further north to a more central location. He wants a place where he can set up his government that will provide easier access to the northern tribes. And so he sets his sights on a Jebusite stronghold, a city called Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the perfect capital for all Israel because of its neutrality. You see, it had been a Jebusite city since the days of Joshua for the last 400 years. But because of that, none of the tribes of Israel had been able to lay claim on it for themselves. And so it had a sense of neutrality. It would be a perfect capital for the whole nation. Well, David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And then the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. You're not getting our city. They're, they're a bit defined, aren't they? They thought their city was unconquerable. You see, even before David, Jerusalem was a strong city. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. David wants to light a fire under his army. And so he says, whoever's first to show initiative, whoever takes aggression and strikes first will be promoted to the rank of a five-star general. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first. He became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo or the tower to the surrounding area, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. Then David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. And I'm sure there's a connection there. The reason David became great was because the Lord was with him. Verse 10. Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And the rest of chapter 11 recounts some of the brave exploits of the men who rallied around David. It's been said, strong beliefs win strong men, and then make them stronger. And this was certainly at work among David's men. This was the dynamic that took place. David's influence rubbed off on his men. These were men who started out confused and discontented, but they became mighty men under David's leadership. David's greatness rubbed off on his men. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Joshabim, the son of Hachmanite, chief of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. That'd make you a mighty man. Knock off 300 guys at one time. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. Well, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, he was one of the three mighty men. And he was with David at Pastadamim. There the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley. And they must have been hungry because they fought over that barley. And the people fled from the Philistines, but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. 
And you remember 2 Samuel 23 verse 10 recounts how Eleazar's hand literally froze to the handle of his sword. You remember that? He had clutched his handle, his sword so tightly that he couldn't release the grip from his sword once the battle was over. Guys, did you know that's the key to victory for you and me? In the battles we face, we need a vice grip on the Word of God if we're going to have victory. We need to grab hold of the sword of the Spirit and not let go. Grab hold of the Word of God. That's the key to victory. Well, now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of the giants. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David, you know, he just kind of kicked back in his lazy boy, in his recliner, you know, thinking of the good old days. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from that well in Bethlehem. Man, that water's so sweet. That water tastes so nice. That well, you know, which is by the gate. Before the war, Bethlehem was David's hometown. Now it was overrun with Philistines. David is hid away in a cave reminiscing, thinking of the good old days when he recalls how sweet that water tasted from the well in Bethlehem. Oh, my... Oh, for a drink of that water. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. You see, in response to David's wish, hey, you could even call it a whim. Three of David's men, they go behind enemy lines. They risk their very lives to bring David some refreshment. And David is so overwhelmed by their act of affection, their actions of loyalty. He realized he doesn't deserve such devotion. Verse 18, nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their very lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. David realized he didn't deserve this kind of sacrifice. Such extravagant love and loyalty should be reserved for God alone. To me, this is a powerful story. Because it illustrates the lavishness of love. You see, real love is lavish. Real love looks reckless and wasteful and uncouth to everyone but the person in love. But when you really love someone, you're willing to take risks. You're willing to spend money you don't have. You're willing to do all kinds of silly, foolish things and expend resources to express that love. You see, love is not afraid to lose. You remember when Mary broke that vial of expensive perfume? and anointed Jesus' feet, it was the pragmatic Judas who questioned her wisdom. Oh, it could have been sold and given to the poor. But you see, Judas didn't understand the logic of love. To Mary, nothing was more important than showing Jesus how much He meant to her. How about you? Do you understand the logic of love? When was the last time 
you took a risk or you were accused of a waste to let the Lord know how much you love Him. You see, the intensity of our love is measured by its extravagance. A love that never takes risks, a love that never exhausts effort, that never spends time, is a love that's grown as cold as ice. Well, verse 20 tells us, Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. And he had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benai, the son of Jehoadai, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds, he had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Evidently, the author remembered the occasion. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. Cubit, about 18 inches, five cubits, 90 inches. Seven foot six inches was this giant. The height of Yao Ming. The Chinese basketball player that plays for the Houston Rockets, seven foot six. That was the size of this giant that Benai killed. In the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. Indeed, he was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard." Now, verses 26 through 47 list the rest of David's mighty men. And I wonder, I just wonder, if the son of David, Jesus Christ, published a list of his mighty men, how many of us would make that list? Would you make his list of mighty men or mighty women? I hope you would. Notice The first name mentioned in verse 41. Interesting. Uriah the Hittite. Name ring a bell? Uriah the Hittite. This made David's sin with Bathsheba all the more diabolical. For Uriah the Hittite was the husband of Bathsheba. And at the same time, one of David's mighty men. Hey, David took the wife of his own loyal servant. Wow. Makes it all the more evil, doesn't it? David betrayed a man who was being loyal to him. Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men. Interesting. One comment. David's mighty men didn't all begin as mighty men. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2 tells us, Everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to David. Oh my. The disenfranchised found a friend in David. Weak people. People with problems. They're the ones that flock to David. But oh my, his influence made them mighty. And you know, the son of David uses the very same strategy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 teaches us that Jesus chooses the foolish things and the weak things 
to confound the wise and the mighty. We come to Jesus distressed and in debt and and discontented. But His influence rubs off on us. His strength becomes our strength. Jesus turns the weak and the foolish into His mighty men. It still happens today. Well, chapter 12 begins. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. You remember for a time David had taken refuge from the madman Saul among the Philistines. And the king of Gath had given him the city of Ziklag. The people listed in chapter 12 joined David's merry men at Ziklag. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. Now, what we need to understand is that rock slinging was not just a pastime. When he talks about throwing rocks, hurling stones, we're not talking about going out to the lake, you know, and hey, let's see how many times we can get this to skip, you know, and skipping rocks across the lake, you know, things that we do to kill time. Oh, no. Rock slinging, stone hurling was one of the arts of ancient warfare, especially in the land of Israel. Because if you were a good rock slinger, you were never out of ammo. Israel is the rockiest place on the planet. Perhaps David popularized stone slinging in his victory over Goliath, you remember. Ironically, today, it's the Palestinians, not the Israelis, who've become expert at throwing rocks. Well, the men who came to David at Ziklag were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. And this is ironic. Saul's own kinfolk rebelled against him and defected over to David. The chief was Ahazir, and Ezra goes on and he lists more of David's mighty men. Down to verse 8. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and who were as swift as gazelles on the mountains." Now, on the surface, you might not think a face like a lion is a compliment, but I think it's intended as that here. It's not that they had long whiskers or something or big, flat noses. But but I think he's talking about courageous faces, faces with firmness, faces with grit, people with lion-hearted courage, and people who were swift as gazelles, had deer-like speed. He lists 11 such men from the tribe of Gad. Verse 14. These were the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over 100 and the greatest was over 1,000. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it had overflowed all its banks. And they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Then some of the children of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, the chief of the captains, and he said, 
We are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troops. You know, as Saul's insanity became more and more evident, more Israelis began to seek refuge with David. It was obvious that God's hand of blessing had departed from Saul and was now upon David. And some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they did not help them, for the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, He may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. When he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected to him were Adna, Josabad, Jediel, Michael, Josabad, Elihu, and Zelothai, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains in the army. You remember while David was away, raiders from the south came up and they plundered Ziklag and they took away the women and the children that belonged to David's men. They took them captive. And so apparently these men from Manasseh, they came and they helped David recover what had belonged to him. Well, for at that time, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army, like the army of God. Isn't that interesting? At Ziklag, David assembled quite a fighting force. As a matter of fact, the next few verses number David's army, verses 23 through 40. I'll just kind of give you some of the numbers. Judah brought 6,800 men to David. Simeon, 7,100. Levi, 4,600. Of Benjamin, the tribe of Saul, there were 3,000 soldiers who defected to David. Ephraim brought 20,800. The western half of Manasseh brought 18,000. Issachar had 200 chiefs, of which it was said, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And don't you know that's the prayer of the Israelis today? That God would give them leaders who had Leaders who had an understanding of the times so that Israel would know what to do. Boy, Israel's got some big decisions facing them. With this madman in Iran and all the other factors that they're facing today, the terrorists on both sides, the Hamas and the Hezbollah, and they got some serious decisions. And I'm sure the Israelis are praying this prayer, Lord, send us someone who has understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Well, Zebulun had 50,000 50, soldiers. And we're told in verse 33, they were expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Not stiff-necked men, stout-hearted men. There's a difference. God wants you to be tough and be strong, but He wants it to get from the back of the neck you know, down to the heart. He wants you to be stout-hearted and strong and courageous. Well, Naphtali brought 37,000 men to David. Dan mustered 28,600. Asher brought 40,000. And the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan numbered 120,000 fighting men who rallied around David. Add up all these numbers, and David had an army well over 300,000 troops. Evidently, a very large percentage of Israel had defected to David. Apparently, at the end of his term, Saul's approval rating 
was lower than President Bush's at the moment. Verse 38. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, the, the tribes around the Galilee, they were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. The kingdom was finally free from the tyranny of Saul. And it had been given to a man after God's own heart. This is a reason to rejoice. This is a reason to party, man. And they had a big inaugural ball right there for King David. Chapter 13. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and if, the, if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And this is commendable. Think of this. David's first act as king is to seek the Lord. He wants to bring up the ark to his new capital there in Jerusalem. He wants the presence of God at the heart of all he does right there in the capital city. A commendable action. Verse 5. So David gathered all Israel together from Shehor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirajerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, to Kirajerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim. Remember the ark had the two cherubim on both sides, the two little golden angels that kind of came up and their wings touched over the ark. And it was literally over the mercy seat, over this ark, this box, that the presence of God rested in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So the, the expression, God dwells between the cherubim. There the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where His name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ohio, well, Uzzah and Ohio, they drove the ark. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might. They were playing music before God with all their might, with singing, on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Shedon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Now the implication is the ark was about to slide. Uzzah was doing just a good deed. He wanted to save God's holy ark from falling off the cart, tumbling and, and crumbling. The ark was headed for disaster. This was a good deed Uzzah wanted to do. Verse 10. 
Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means outbreak against Uzzah. Now, David was afraid of God that day, saying, and his fear was appropriate. He should have feared God before the incident. Then maybe he would have read in the scriptures how the ark was supposed to be transported. But now all of a sudden, he certainly has a fear of God. And he says, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Now understand, David's desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem and to seek the Lord, this was a noble desire. The problem was that David's methods were ill-informed. The law of Moses, and specifically Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, made it clear that the ark was supposed to be transported on poles. Instead, David acts like he's from Alabama. He's an old boy from Alabama. He puts the sacred ark on a flatbed truck. Literally a cart. And David and Uzzah become victims of their own ignorance. Hey, What you don't know can hurt you. God's giving you this book so that you'd understand it and read it. And if you're sitting there and say, well, I'm not going to touch the book because what I don't know won't hurt me. It will too. You have a responsibility to get to know some stuff. To read God's word. To discover what it says. That's your responsibility. Well, you know, they both may have meant well, Uzzah and David. But when it comes to the worship of God, good intentions are never enough. You see, God has a prescribed way that He wants to be worshipped. Always remember that. God not only wants us to worship Him, but He wants us to worship Him in the way He desires. And if you truly want to worship God, you'll seek out that way. And you'll conform your actions to God's designs and God's prescriptions. You see, David and Uzzah ignored God's commandments and they paid the price. And David got angry with God, but what he should have been angry with was himself. You know, so often in our excitement to worship God, we don't consider how God wants to be worshipped. This is why good intentions in our worship are never enough. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23? True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Oh, in excitement, in zeal, you know, in, in enthusiasm, but also in truth. The way God wants to be worshipped. Right motives and right methods matter to God. This is why the key ingredient in our worship is always obedience. Lots of people want to worship God in ways that are convenient for them. But our newest and our shiniest carts are no substitute for obedience. Folks who worship in the flesh eventually fall off the wagon. Chapter 14. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. 
So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted because of his people Israel. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. And you remember Deuteronomy 17 verse 17 prohibited the Hebrew king from building a harem, from multiplying wives. God's word to the kings of Israel, one is enough. And David sinned by building up a harem there in Jerusalem. And these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elipelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Biliada. And you notice how toward the end they started running out of names, and so they came up with this last one, Elaphelet. Thirteen kids born to David there in Jerusalem. Little elephant being the last. They kept all of the baby items in his trunk. That's not even in my notes. I just came up with it. <laughs> Stick to the script. Good advice. Verse 8. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel... All the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of the giants. You remember, facing the giants. That's what David is doing here, facing the giants. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And notice this. This is what made David a man after God's own heart. David seeks God before he takes action. Is this your strategy? Is this how you approach life? Do you seek God before you take action? You should. Save yourself a lot of heartache and a lot of problem if you would. And the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. And so they went up to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies. By my hand, like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of that place Baal Perazim, which means Lord of the breakthroughs. And my, I like that name. If you're stuck in a rut, if you've been spinning your wheels getting nowhere spiritually, seek Jesus, for he is the Lord of the breakthroughs. You know, some of us have beaten our heads against the wall for way too many years. We've tried a million ways to get rid of our ball and chain. What we need is a breakthrough. Is that what you need? Well, I know who can help. The Lord of the breakthroughs is his name. Well, when they had left their gods there, the Philistine idols, David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. Here, David acts like Donald Trump on The Apprentice, and he says to the false gods of the Philistines, Then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley. Now, I want you to notice the Philistines launch another raid under almost identical circumstances. And I'm afraid that most of us would just assume that God would want us to win the victory with the same strategy we had just a few days before. But David doesn't take anything for granted. This is important. 
Therefore, David inquired again of God and God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Same battle, same conditions, same enemy, same army, but different strategy this time. God has a different plan. You shall not go up after them. Circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching. You know, the wind blowing in the top of the mulberry trees. The sound of marching up in the top of the trees. Then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. God commands David and his army to wait on the wind. Remember that. To wait on the wind. Verse 16. So David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. Then the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Here's the moral of the story. Just because God works one way in the past doesn't mean he'll work the same way in the future. Don't assume. Seek God. Hey, God's command to us today is the same as it was for David. We also need to wait on the wind. We need to be led and empowered by the fresh breeze of God's Spirit. You see, pre-programmed pattern solutions are never God's method. God's will is blowing in the wind. God wants His people led by the Spirit, not some formula. We need to wait on the wind, the marching in the mulberries, the wind blowing our direction. We need to be led and we need to follow the fresh breeze of the Holy Spirit. Well, chapter 15 begins. David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. David's been reading up on this, huh? <laughs> the old boy decided to get his Bible out. Thumb through a few pages. Let's read up on this before we try this again. He's learned his lesson. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites, and there were 862 Levites. Verse 11. And David called for Zedek and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Aziah, Joel, Shimeiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not consult Him about the proper order. And so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Now David adds some knowledge and some obedience to his spiritual fervor. And God gets glorified. But as we saw with Uzzah, zeal without knowledge 
becomes dangerous. This is why churches today that downplay the teaching of the Word and focus almost solely on worship, this is why those churches are destined for failure. For without God's Word, how do we know if we're worshiping God properly and appropriately? Again, Jesus tells us to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. This time, David adds music to the processional. And he appoints singers and musicians to accompany the ark to Jerusalem. David tells the Levitical ensemble to raise the praise. Go out with a resounding joy. And I love that expression. A resounding joy. You see, this is biblical worship in two words. True praise is the echo or the resounding of the joy God puts in our hearts. God fills our hearts with joy, and then we echo that joy back to Him. This praise is the resounding joy that He puts in us. He sings into us, and then we sing back to Him. A resounding joy. Verses 17 to 24. They list the names of the singers and the musicians and the attendants who were recruited for the moving of the ark. And after what happened earlier to Uzzah, you could probably add that these people were men of courage and great faith. So David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers. Chenaniah, the music master with his singers. Sounds like the name of a group. David also wore a linen ephod, and of course, the ephod was a priestly apron. Thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. Oh my, it was a joyous day in all Israel, except in the king's own household. For verse 29, And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, Saul's daughter. Notice, Ezra refers to her as Saul's daughter. But she was also David's wife. You know, it was one of those moments. You know, like when, you know, Kathy says to me, hey, Carol's son, get over here. Rather than, hey, honey, my husband, come over here. You know, She's not at this moment, she's not behaving like David's wife. She's behaving like Saul's daughter. Okay? 
And Michael looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music. And she despised him in her heart. David went home that night with a resounding joy in his heart. The ark was now at the heart of the capital of Jerusalem. But when he arrives home, his wife, Michael, throws a damper on the day. And she greets him with a resounding thud. 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us the couple had words. These two lovebirds lay an egg. You see, David had done a jig for Jesus. He'd been out there dancing and whirling and twirling. He had thrown off all of his inhibition. You know, people talk about, well, how was he dressed, you know? Was he naked? Was he dancing in his underwear? Did he have his little ephah? I mean, what was he wearing? I don't know what he was wearing. I do know this. He had thrown off all inhibition. He had thrown off all self-preoccupation. He is dancing his praise uninhibitedly, boldly before the Lord. And his wife is looking out the window. And she is resenting this undignified action. She's becoming unglued. You see, Michael was Saul's daughter. And you remember, above all else, Saul's one concern was his own image. You see, Saul's idol was not a graven image. It was his own self-image. Saul would always try to act royal and dignified. He would never have humbled himself before the people. Never. And Michael thought that David's uninhibited display of worship, his whirling about, lacked the dignity of a king. David, though, had a different idea of what it meant to be king. David was concerned, more concerned, with pleasing God than maintaining a proper public image. Saul followed his approval ratings on CNN. He was always doing the focus groups and consulting the opinion polls before he took action. David followed his heart. David followed God and he followed his heart. And he was in love with God and he acted like it. You see, Saul wanted the people's worship. David wanted to worship God. That was the difference between these two men. And at the moment, she acted like Saul's daughter, no doubt about it, rather than David's wife. Chapter 16. And so they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Now again, this was not the tabernacle of Moses, nor is this the temple of Solomon. That's yet to come. This was a tent that had just been erected for, by David just for this purpose of providing a temporary home for the ark. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished Offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Sounds like a box lunch, you know, just the kind of thing we serve folks at the pastor's conference. You know, it's got a little piece of meat, a little piece of bread, a little box of little raisins, you know, in there. And it's all just kind of packaged neatly in there. And David feeds these worship. I mean, hey, you worship God with all your might, and you can work up an appetite. And David has just finished moving the ark, making all these sacrifices, and so he works up a little box lunch for the people. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Notice the threefold function of music here in David's reign, commemorate. 
thanks, praise. Music needs to memorialize God's work. Show our gratitude and give God praise. Verse 5. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, then Jeel, a lot of other guys there, several other guys. (laughs) And Jeel with stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals. Benaiah and Jehazaziel, the priests, they regularly blew the trumpets before the ark of the covenant of God. And on that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph, his brethren, to thank the Lord. This psalm seems to be a compilation of several other psalms written by David at different times. The three psalms that appear in this psalm Psalm 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. In fact, if you compare verses 8 through 22 with Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15, you'll see an amazing similarity. Then verses 23 through 33, compare that with Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. And then finally, verses 34 through 36, compare that with Psalm 106, verse 1, and then verses 47 and 48. And you'll see that these two, this psalm is actually a a grouping of these different passages from these other psalms. So understanding that, we're going to wait and study this psalm when we get to the same passages in the other psalms when we get to the book of Psalms. But I thought what we'd do tonight is we'd read through this psalm You just catch its full force as we read it through in one setting. Verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing psalms to Him. Talk of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. In your time after the service tonight, I hope that's what you're doing. Not talking about who's going to win on American Idol or dancing with the stars or baseball or whatever. I hope you're, you're doing these things. You're, you're talking of all God's wondrous ways. You're singing His deeds among the peoples. You're praising Him. He says, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face evermore. Remember His marvelous works which He has done. His wonders and the judgments of His mouth, O seed of Israel, His servant, you children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. The word which He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Now, just just to pause. Is there any debate in God's mind over who that chunk of land belongs to over there? Seems to be no, no issue with God. David calls this an everlasting covenant. He says this is a covenant good through a thousand generations. To you, Abraham, and your seed, I will give the land of Cana as an allotment for your inheritance. As far as I'm concerned, that's it. Palestinians, you're, you're, you're out in the cold. This land belongs to the Jews. It belongs to Israel. Why? 
because God gave it to them. And the whole world belongs to God, so He can give it to whoever He pleases. Now, now I'm not saying that, that there's not a place for the Palestinians and we shouldn't show love and compassion toward them. We certainly should, and we should preach them the gospel of Jesus. But that land that they're fighting over doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God, and God gave it to Israel. And that's exactly what our passage tells us. When you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Oh, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, and praise the Lord. Now, who does the land belong to? Who does the land of Israel belong to? Belongs to God. And God gave it to who? To Israel. No questions. If you believe the Bible. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly. As every day's work required, and Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosa, to be gatekeepers. And Zadok, the priest, and his brethren, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering, regularly, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them, He-Man, He-Man, and Jeduthun, and the rest who were chosen who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because His mercy endures forever. And with them, He-Man and Jeduthun. You know, if you're a He-Man, you can lift the praise. That's what makes a He-Man. Somebody that can lift up the praise. And so with them, He-Man and Jeduthun, to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. Then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house.